I'm Tina Tang, an equities trader turned jewelry designer turned strength coach for women over 40. This podcast is my survival guide to health over 40, where I'll share things I wish my mom had told me, and where I'll interview experts to give us guidance about aging well. Check in every week for my newest episode. New York and New Jersey friends, save the date July 15th for a very special workshop, Everything Your Mother Didn't Tell You About Menopause. I'll be co-hosting this with Dr. Melanie Yanez, and our panelists will include a menopause-certified gynecologist, a pelvic floor physical therapist, and a menopause-specialized nutritionist. I will be moderating the questions, asking everything that I wish my mom had shared with me. The event will be held at Serendipity Loft in downtown Jersey City from 1 to 3 p.m. on July 15th. More details to come about how to book a ticket. Welcome back. I'm with my special monthly guest, Dr. Christine Hyde. She's the founder of the New Jersey Center for Sex Therapy and has been a practicing sex therapist for over 26 years. And today we are talking about sex after an affair. So, Dr. Hyde, let's go straight into talking about monogamy. What is it? You know, how what does it mean for people? So, there are all different kinds of monogamy, Tina. I mean, the first kind of monogamy is what we think of as sexual monogamy, right? So I'm only having sex with this one partner. Um, Another definition might be serial monogamy. And that's what most of us actually practice. So serial monogamy is basically a series of relationships that we have over the course of our life. So if you think about it, when you were a teenager and you were dating someone, that's one little monogamous relationship for a week, two weeks, 10 months, whatever it lasted. So human beings have a tendency towards having serial monogamy. So what does monogamy itself mean? Well, we think of it as emotionally and sexually faithful. But actually, social monogamy is pair bonding with another human being for emotional reasons, for living together reasons, potentially for um, having children together reasons. Um, But it rarely also includes um, no desire for anyone else sexually. That means you still have, you still retain your desire for other people. And so that biological pull to potentially have other partners still always exists, even within social monogamy. So that's pretty much monogamy. And and just a couple of more statistics, like only 9% of mammals are monogamous. And when you ask, um, you know, where did monogamy even begin, right? Monogamy began thousands of years ago with primates, So primates realize that if we breed and if the male stays together, the likelihood for the offspring to survive and continue to pass the gene pool would increase. So primates started breeding, staying together, nourishing their babies, staying with the the pair bonds parents until the child became older and grown. But even within the primate community, only 29% were sexually monogamous. So even those that we call primate monogamous, only 29% were sexually monogamous. And very interesting fact, as I did some research preparing for our talk, is that 
In anthropological studies, 17% of all human cultures are monogamous. All the other cultures are not sexually monogamous. That leaves a large percentage of human populace that is not not monogamous. So we have a lean towards non-monogamy. I would argue that it's monogamy, sexual, social, uh, genetic. Genetic uh, monogamy means we only have sex with each other exclusively for the whole of our lives is actually more of an ideal than a reality. So that's very interesting because then it makes, uh, I guess, you know, especially in the United States with the way you see in movies and everything, that that's the, the ideal. Um, so it's not unusual for an affair to happen. It's extremely common for an affair to happen. When I did some research on what is the commonality of affairs, there were so many different studies. But I took studies that were within five to seven years of, of today, and I looked at them all, and I found that statistics show that between 43% and upwards of 85% of people cheat within their wow, that's actually social high. monogamous relationship. Okay. okay. So then it's a much more normal than not, um, not necessarily meaning that it's okay for the both members in the, in the partnership. Maybe we can talk about, uh, especially when you meet with pay, uh, clients, what, why do affairs happen or what are some of the things that there, there are a lot of reasons why people have affairs, right? So when we talk about affairs for the sake of our conversation, it's important to know that there are different kinds of affairs, right? There are emotional affairs where you're seeking out your emotional needs with another person outside of your primary exclusive relationship. And there are also sexual affairs, which include some sort of sexuality. Um, some people think um, and would say to me, watching pornography is cheating. Some people would say to me, um, uh, kissing another person is cheating. Some people would say to me, well, if you have a very long conversation with the opposite sex and you're flirting, that's cheating. So for the sake of just our podcast today, I would say we're going to define cheating as being sexually, um, you know, an actual sexual act likely to be intercourse of some description. Okay. So that could be oral sex, okay. but it's some sort of penetrative intercourse, just uh, so that we're all using the same definition as we continue to speak. Yep. So you asked, why do Makes people sense. have fears? You know, here are some of the very common reasons I hear in my practice. I don't feel appreciated. I feel like my partner doesn't understand me. I feel like I do all these things and he or she just doesn't even notice, doesn't even care. I don't even get a thank you, nothing. Another common reason is I feel neglected. Like my partner is busy with other things. My partner's busy with the kids. My partner's busy with his or her poker team. My partner's busy working all the time and I'm left alone and I don't feel any kind of romantic connection to my person anymore. Some people cheese because they crave intimacy. You know, intimacy in the sense of mm. sharing my body, being naked, having some kind of sexuality. In prior podcasts, you and I talked about how men very commonly, of course, not all men, but men very commonly feel loved, wanted, and desired through the act of sex, right? And women very commonly yeah. feel loved, wanted, and desired through acts of service and kindness and words and appreciation. So we have different love languages, generally speaking, and that contributes yeah. to sometimes our mismatch. 
other reasons people cheat, there's no joy. There's no fun in our lives, right? I don't, you know, it's, there's never an opportunity to have any fun. There's no romance. I don't feel any romance. Sometimes it's I feel criticized. I feel undervalued. Yeah. I feel put down. It's It goes beyond appreciation. It goes to you not only don't notice me, but you don't even like me. Okay. And another common reason, believe it or not, and people would argue it's not a great reason, is I'm bored. I'm bored. I just, yeah, you know, and like their life, that kind of goes with the not having joy. I mean, um, yes, but some people have joy. There's nothing going on in their lives. And they're Uh they're bored anyway. So some people are really, they need to crave novelty, newness, excitement. And if my um, threshold for novelty, newness, excitement is pretty low and yours is pretty high, you're going to get bored and tired and discontented very, very quickly. Yeah. Everything that you listed emotionally, I feel like every, almost everyone probably has felt, even within a friendship, um, about, I don't feel appreciated. I'm always doing stuff. Someone, your friend is taking you for granted or your partner. Um, so it almost feels like it's inevitable. Yeah. I mean, just right? listing that, that someone's right. going to have an affair, especially, and then going against statistics. So, I mean, even this was kind of off topic. What would make someone, I wonder, want to be in a monogamous relationship when the ads are stacked against right. you. Well, again, I think, I think sexual and emotional monogamy is, is a little idealistic. And I think because we are so honed into this romantic view of life and we want to feel safe, we want to feel secure, we want to feel like our partner is reliable, we want to feel forever because that helps reduce our anxiety, helps us feel comfortable, which people seek comfort, people seek security, right? I would argue women even more mm-hmm. than men, but I think it's still something men mm-hmm. want. I think because that's our ideal and because when we're in the honeymoon infatuation phase, which is usually when we start thinking about permanently pair bonding with somebody, having that social monogamy with somebody, I think what we we live in idealism. We say, you know, it's going to be great and I'm going to feel just the way I feel in this awesome infatuation phase and this is just going to continue for the rest of our lives. And I think the feelings of neglect, not feeling appreciated, wanting joy, not wanting to be criticized, we're all going to endure this in any normal marriage. So the feelings and the problems mm-hmm. in and of themselves aren't a recipe and a guarantee for an affair. What's a guarantee for an affair, Tina, is when you don't work at remediating and improving and hearing your partner's complaints and wishes, right? That's yeah. what leads to an affair. It's sort of, we. I feel crappy, you feel crummy, we both don't feel great, we don't talk about it, we don't do anything to fix it. We figure our relationship's going to be on cruise control and no relationship Mm -hmm. survives on cruise control or it does. And it's not a particularly fulfilling relationship. You absolutely can survive on cruise control. But I think that's the problem. It's not nurturing those things. Okay. That makes sense. So then that goes to, let's say someone in a partnership does have an affair, uh, a sexual affair how what next because i can imagine there's a lot of betrayal feelings uh going to be so so understand a couple of things 
we're talking about sexual affairs um, versus emotional affairs, okay? Um, mm-hmm. The chances and your odds of getting caught, getting caught, now this is not coming clean, right? This is getting caught, are about 12% the first time you do it. They're, well, that's fairly, that's a lot lower than I thought. They're about 13% <laughs> the second time you do it. And they're only in the 20-ish percent by the fifth or greater time you do it. So the odds of getting caught are pretty low. The odds of stopping it on your own will depend on a few things, on the availability of that person Mm -hmm. to see them again, or it'll depend on your motivation and your guilt and your feeling badly to go back into the relationship. And I will tell you, you know, we often think men or women don't feel badly after they've had an affair. They feel justified. They've got bravado. There is a small sense of entitlement, but after it's occurred, universally, practically universally, there's a guilt feeling. There's a, I don't want to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is a natural lean towards wanting to kind of hone back in to our comfort place. I'm actually quite surprised about the percentages because I would think that the other, the other person in the relationship might not have evidence would have a feeling about it because you know this person so well that you can kind of sense like whether it's a pullback or slightly different behavior or something where you have no proof, but you have a feeling about it. And actually some of the signs that somebody is having an affair um, may not be what you think, right? So if a person starts to have a little bit more sex with you and you're like, oh, look, we're rekindling things. Actually, what's happened is your body from having an affair has become a little bit more alert and awake to your sexuality. And you will actually go home and have more sex with your partner, whether it's a man or a woman. Okay. So you're having more sex and you might think, oh, this is great. Oh my gosh. You know, and it may not be the case. And I agree with you, Tina, there are a lot of Uh signs, but you know, it's kind of like the stages of grief, like people are in denial and they don't necessarily want to know, or they know, but you know, it's probably Mm -hmm. just this, or it's probably just something else. Um, because what's at stake for people is a lot of shame, a lot of um, really terrible erosion of your self-esteem, erosion of your sex esteem. So people would rather kind of bury their head in the sand, throw the rug over it and say, you know, it's probably not that. He's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. So let's say... um... Somehow it comes out, whether it be through discovery or uh, I, I doubt anyone will straight up admit it unless something led to it, like proof. How does a couple move on from there? On the side, I think, especially of the person who's been cheated right. on. I mean, the first thing you have to figure out is the, a little bit of the nature of the affair right? Is it a one and done? Mm -hmm. Is it something that's happened repeatedly? Is this somebody that your partner's been seeing for six months, a year, several years? You know, I think the magnitude does matter. You know, people will say cheating's cheating. It's all the same. And I would argue that that's not quite true. All cheating is a violation of trust. All cheating is um, breaking the agreement and the contract of your relationship, your marriage, if that's what you guys have agreed to. So all of it is, let's say, morally incorrect, right? But the nature and how it occurs will also help show you the path to recovery. 
So if it's a one and done and it happened on this random trip and I'm never going to see the person again and there's no texting and there's no, it's sort of like a, a thing that happened within a bubble, the chances of recovery on that, on that face alone are higher than if the woman has felt neglected for a very long period of time and there's no romance and she feels criticized and she's deep in an infatuation phase with the person she's having an affair with, that's a harder pull and that's a much greater chance of jeopardizing the primary relationship because the primary relationship can hardly compete with the novelty and the newness and the infatuation of that other relationship and the needs that have been met through that other relationship. Is it possible to not use a, have a professional help you work through that and to work through it yourselves? Everything depends on your level of communication. Everything depends on your level of transparency. And I think the other piece is you have to have a little bit of self-reflection and insight, right? You really need to, as Mm -hmm. a couple, whether you, so here's what I'll say. What do you do if, if somebody, you find out somebody has an affair? right? The first thing I tell people do to do is not to do anything immediately, right? Because whatever your immediate gut is, you may not be able to hold to, right? So society has really pressured both men and women that you have to leave, you have to go, you should value yourself, you shouldn't take it, get away, you know, end it. But look at what I'm telling you the odds are of going into another relationship with the same issue. Odds are pretty high. If you go back fishing and you capture another fish, another person, odds are, again, you're facing a lot of things. So what I say is at least try and see if there's things that are salvageable. So the first thing you want to do is reassess your relationship. Take an inventory. What are the pros and cons? What works well? What doesn't work well? You know, you want to look at why did the infidelity occur? right? What were those reasons? Was it lack of appreciation? Was it boredom? Was it being criticized and pecked at? Like, what was it, right? You want to take an accounting of what did you contribute to the negativity of the relationship, if anything. I'm not suggesting it's anyone else's fault but the person who actually made that choice, but they're contributing environmental factors, right? That That's all I'm saying. You want to look at what your insecurities are. You want to look at what your triggers are, like what triggers you, what worries you, what, what are you somebody who's fearing abandonment? What is your attachment style? You also want to come at it from a place of empathy and care for yourself. Like, you know, people feel stupid. People feel like an idiot. People feel not worthy. And, you know, you kind of have to take a good clean inventory of, is that true? What part of is that true? What part of it is completely false? And this is your stuff, your baggage, not mine, right? We have a reflexive way for some people to say, wasn't me, has nothing to do with me. And then other people have the other reflexive, oh my gosh, it's all my fault. I led him or her to do this. So you don't want to be on either side of that teeter-totter. You kind of want to be some here, some here. Let's just take a look at it. You want to look at what your support systems are. And you also kind of want to look at what does your self-care look like, right? Because it's a time to kind of self-reflect, um, take care of yourself, be kind and gentle. That's what I would say. I think that everything you said sounds so ideal, but I find 
that would be very hard to be object- objectively self-reflective during this time when you're so yes. emotional on either side. So it's so and emotionally for those reasons, um, charged. I think a third party professional to guide you through it, to mm-hmm. hold all those feelings, to help everyone feel like they have a yeah. voice, to have, to have, to give some direction to the ship of what do we do now? We feel like we're both drowning or one of us is drowning to talk about the grief Right. Because that's complicated. Believe it or not, the person who's considering leaving yeah. that other partner, the, the affair partner, is also grieving. So you're grieving. I'm grieving. Mm. What do you mean you're grieving? You're supposed to love me. You're, what are you grieving? And that person is grieving. So it is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. I obviously am a huge proponent of getting some good professional help. And I'm wondering, because I know this is a, a common thirst for knowledge. Let's say your partner has an affair. It comes out. They say they're sorry. I would think, I would probably say, well, I want to know every little detail. What's your advice when people like, tell me everything. How did you meet? What kind of stuff did you do? Even if it was a one, a so-called one-off So human beings reflexively think that information gives them power. It gives them safety. It gives them an understanding. And they want, especially women more than men, but even men sometimes, they want every little morsel of, of information. And I really caution people to share that information. Right. I've been caught. I'm held up with you have a gun in your hand and you're asking me for all the details. So out of fear of like everything being over, I'm like, all right, I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you everything. Right. Or I'll tell you a little, see how you react. Then I'll give you a little more if I think you can handle it is more of what I see. Right. I am telling you from my perspective, knowing the broad the broad reasons and the things that led to it are much more important. And I will warn you, be careful for what you wish for because you can't unsee the crime scene. And by that, I mean, once you decide to see what a decapitated head looks like, you can't unsee what that image is, right? Once you know Santa Claus isn't real, you can't go back to believing in Santa Claus. Once you know she had big breasts and I have tiny breasts, or she was super tall and led long, beautiful hair and never had children or stretch marks, I can't unsee that. And so I'm forever competing with what I call the ghost of this more perfect person. And that impacts sex. Like, Mm. believe it or not, One of the first things people do after they've gotten over the shock and the denial of the affair is that the person who's been betrayed will suddenly become this like sex fiend. So I'm having sex with you. I'm doing reverse cowgirl. I'm fine. I'm looking up positions, doing things I've never done before. Let's go out on the lawn and do it because there's a sense of, I want to capture you back. I want to win you over as much as I hate you right now. I want to win you over and that's not sustainable, right? And it doesn't feel like you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel authentic and genuine. And it feels crummy because you're trying to almost layer your scent on top of a mark your territory over over your territory having been marked by someone on the outside. You had mentioned, like, let's say someone, when you're trying to figure out with an affair is the circumstances. And you said, what if it's a one-time thing because of a business trip? But that leads me to the question of if someone's cheated once because of the various reasons of the relationship, 
would it be more likely that this person <clears throat> so, wants to cheat or always a so cheater? So I'm going to say that sometimes kind of yes, thought. Tina, and sometimes no, okay? I'll tell you there are three things that you need to have an affair. The first is you have to have inclination. The second is motivation. And the third is opportunity. So inclination are all the things that you're not feeling or getting in your relationship. That kind of permits you to be more inclined to considering it. Motivation means, huh, if I wanted to have an affair, how would I go about doing it? Where would I go? What time during the day would I have available? You know, who might I meet? That's the motivation. We go from thinking about it to making some moves, potentially, or thinking about how to make moves. And the last one is opportunity. Opportunity means you might be inclined and you might be motivated, but every hour of your day is literally completely filled with responsibilities and, you know, um, oversights, right? I'm at my job from this time to this time. I have a half hour to get home. I eat dinner. I stay home. I have no reason. I can't get out, right? I can't get out for an opportunity. So mm-hmm. you need all three in order to have an affair. Otherwise, affairs don't occur. So kind of taking an accounting of yourself and saying, am I inclined without motivation and then I have an opportunity, I'm not going to do anything. If I have an opportunity and I'm not inclined or motivated, it doesn't matter. I can have a harem of men. If I'm not motivated or inclined, nothing's going to happen. Now, if the reasons or the inclinations aren't remedied and I continue to have business trips Mm -hmm. and we haven't kind of fixed any of the foundational stuff, Odds are pretty good it's going to reoccur, at which point you have to decide what I say is cost-benefit analysis. Does the benefits of the total relationship, the kind of parent the person is, the kind of how you know housemate they are, the kind of friend they are, our history together, our in-laws, do those losses, if I leave the relationship for the sexuality, outweigh the gains? Actually looking at, okay, the the pros versus the cons, cons, yes. Right? And, you know, what's interesting to me is people today are not ashamed or much less ashamed of being divorced. But if you ask somebody, were you cheated on, people will not raise their hand. And, And Esther Perel asked in her TED Talk, has anyone been cheated on, no one raises their hand. And then she says, has anyone ever been impacted from an infidelity? And then the room raises their hand. And the reason is, is if I don't have to identify it as my personal relationship, I could say it was my parents. I can say it was my grandparents. I could say it was my best friend's, you know, relationship. Now people and the shame goes down and all the hands go up. Because it almost feels like you're something right. wrong. And with what you I'm trying to tell on. people is that it's yeah. very rare that it's you. There are so many factors. It could be impulsivity. It could be boredom. It could yeah. be everything is honky dory. So it's not yeah. an automatic um, reflection that your marriage is bad. Sometimes it is, but not always. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. When you meet with your clients, how do you navigate? the post-affair cleaning up and if the couple wants to 
remain together. They, they, they see that all the pros outweigh the cons, but there's so many feelings about what happened. I mean, I mean that'd be hard to get hard over. It is hard to get over, but I will tell you, many, many people mm-hmm. do heal from it. And many, many people mm-hmm. do realize, and not a value judgment, but the humanity in it. You know, back in the day, we got married at yeah. 13, 14 years old, and we were dead by 22 to 27. And even then, people were cheating. So- right. Sexual monogamy is difficult. Emotional monogamy is a bit easier as long as the foundation is there in the relationship. So it's kind of understanding, you know, what Mm -hmm. is realistic? What, what is the humanity in me seeing the humanity in you? It's really talking about the stages of Mm -hmm. grief, denial, anger, you know, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and acceptance doesn't mean forgiveness. You know, I can accept something and understand it and not be able to forgive it. And I have couples who are in marriages where they continue the marriage, but there isn't forgiveness. And that becomes troublesome going forward because because it becomes part of what I call the the Rolodex of like, I'm pulling out the card of remember when you did this, right? So I recently had a couple, she's 85, he's 89. And she brought up the fact that remember that one time when we were engaged, that you had a fling with so-and-so. They've been married for over 60 years. And he swears it had never, ever reoccurred. So there is the accepting. Yeah. There's the forgiving, and then there's the proverbial forgetting. And that's a harder one. People do not forget, right? People do not forget. Yeah. All of that emotional and psychological aspect of post-affair, is that what affects sex after an affair? It affects sex because if you don't, especially for women, if we don't like you, if we don't, uh, we can love each other, but if we don't like you, we can't share our bodies with you. And so it's really kind of the work Mm. is really trying to get closer to liking one another, to appreciating one another, to remedying the problems within the relationship, to having greater connectivity and feeling that greater connection, you know? And again, it depends Mm -hmm. if the person you've had an affair with or the person, you know, who's been cheated on, the other person, what is the significance of that other person? You know, and you know, one just quick last myth is that men will cheat significantly higher rates than women. And that's not true at all. Men and women treat at the same rates, but not for the same reasons. Women are much more likely to cheat for an emotional connection for, um, having the, themselves feel appreciated and, and joy and, and romance and not feeling criticized. And those are big reasons why women cheat. I'm not saying women don't cheat out of boredom, but that's much, much more exceptional. Yeah. Those are the reasons women cheat. Men will often, more often than not, cheat for sexual deprivation. I haven't had sex in, you know, eight months, a year, five years. My wife doesn't want me. Any sex we have is pity sex. I don't feel desired. I don't feel desirable. And then they will go out to feel that desirability sexually. So those are more the reasons why Mm. men cheat. Some women cheat for that reason, but it's often when men have low sexual desire. In essence, are you saying that it is possible 
to have a healthier sex, a healthy sex life post-affair, but it's a lot of, the work is not about knowing how to have better sex, but it's everything that leads up yes, to that's, that's the, sexual, the act of sex. That's the perfect synopsis. Yeah, that's exactly it. This has been extremely helpful. Our next podcast episode, we'll be talking about open relationships because this does make me think about like, wow, if monogamy is that hard, you know, why don't people have more open relationships and what does that entail? Yeah, so we'll talk great. about I'm that next time, Dr. Hyde. I'm Tina Tang, an equities trader turned jewelry designer turned strength coach for women over 40. This podcast is my survival guide to health over 40, where I'll share things I wish my mom had told me and where I'll interview experts to give us guidance about aging well. Check in every week for my newest episode.